What's up, everyone? I'm Chris from Weekly Games Chat. Along with my co-hosts, Sean and John, we cover the latest video games every Wednesday for your listening pleasure. We also make sure to rant about the latest movies, TV shows, and happenings in the sports world. If you like the show, catch one of our live streams on Twitch, follow us on Twitter, or even take the biggest jump of all and join our community on Discord. All found by simply searching Weekly Games Chat. Until then, I'll simply say game on in your mom's box. Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary and narrative style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 20, Real Sound, TM, and Voice Characterizations. These are, in a sense, the sounds of a video game revolution. The sounds of a change so profound that it opens the door to entirely new genres. They are digitized audio samples, a recorded analog waveform converted into a digital signal, and then back into analog audio through your headphones. In this case, via a couple of Macintosh games from 1985 and 86. We take this capability for granted nowadays, as we use our voice calling apps and record videos with our smartphones, and as we consume our digitally recorded entertainment and news media. It's how you're hearing this podcast, too. I spoke into a microphone which translated my voice into some binary data that computers can understand, and an audio chip built into your computer or phone or whatever the device you're listening with is, translates that edited version back into a sound that you can understand through your ears. But you only have to roll back the clock 35 years to get to a time when this sort of technology was beyond the reach of the masses, when digital audio was something only used by specialist researchers and archivists and cutting-edge or experimental sound engineers, and when the thought of using it on an off-the-shelf personal computer, for games, no less, was almost unheard of. But then the Apple Macintosh came out in January of 1984, and Apple's so-called computer for the rest of us had a secret capability inside that would unlock this door to digital audio for the masses. There were um, two ways you could play sounds on the early Macintosh. This is Eric Zocker, who in 1984 was a computer science student at the University of California, San Diego and a programmer on a small commercial game project called Airborne. One was a, a sound driver that they, that they had written in Apple that would, it was a four-voice uh, synthesizer that would play like square waves or just really simple waveforms. And so it could make beeps and kind of make little tones like um, people were familiar with in microcomputers at the time. And then there's a thing that will play sampled sounds and you just give it the sample and it'll play it. And that was also a built-in driver. It could only play one at a time, though. Macintosh system software designer Andy Hertzfeld had created this sound driver for digital audio playback, 
then hidden it away, mostly undocumented, when Apple management pushed to distance the Mac from any potential arguments that it was a toy computer for playing games. But hidden or not, the Mac was actually the first personal computer that could play back digital sounds. And Eric was one of the first people to discover this feature. Um, but I said, wow, this is pretty interesting. And, and uh, uh, compact discs were, I think they were announced, but they hadn't come out yet. So people knew kind of about digital music. At any rate, um, I was really into, I was a music listener and enthusiast and had, you know, like 500 LPs and a big stereo system. And so I knew I, I was, I was into listening to music and I knew about, you know, playback hardware and stuff. So I read the documentation and I was like, okay, let's see. So my original thinking was if I took a recording of an explosion and then I looked at the waveforms, then I'd be able to figure out how to resynthesize it with the four voice sound driver that Apple provides you. And then we'll get a kind of contemporary computer game that has beeps and boops and stuff. In other words, something that sounded more like this. Most computer games at the time relied on simple forms of sound synthesis, on square waves and triangle waves and random noise, and other kinds of digital signals that a computer could generate and play through its tiny built-in speaker. If used artfully, this could sound incredible, like the synthesized music you'd hear in games like King's Quest and The Black Cauldron. or the gritty sound effects from the likes of Choplifter and Alley Cat. But figuring out a way to get actual, real-world sound recordings to play in a computer game would open up a whole new realm of possibility. Now, back to our story. Eric Zocker had just joined a little startup software company called Silicon Beach Software, which was founded by an entrepreneur called Charlie Jackson. Let's hear from Charlie. I I saw the Macintosh, and I'd been looking to try to do something in software even before the Macintosh came out, but I hadn't found a good opportunity. I didn't really have any you know major financing available to me. So the Mac came out though, and I had a little computer training business. I was teaching people how to use Apple IIs and, and IBM PCs at that point, and doing instructional courses. You know, and businesses would hire me, and I'd go in and teach their people. And, and then I saw the Mac and I said, okay, this is the new opportunity because I'd seen what had happened with both the Apple II and the IBM PC. When they first come out, there's very little software. And then people just want software. They want almost anything, you know, it's something to buy for their computer. I remember somebody walking into a store here locally and uh, had a new IBM PC said, well, any new software? I want to buy something. <laughs> and so the Macs looked like a really interesting new opportunity. So I planned to do something. I said, okay, I'm going to do something, you know, with Macintosh. So I got to start finding some people. So I founded the San Diego Macintosh user group. And the first couple of meetings were in my house. At the very first meeting, he met Eric, who, let's say, was excited at the prospect of collaboration. And I think there were about 35 of us in Charlie's uh, office in his house. And, uh, and I stayed around because he had a Mac and I hadn't played with one yet. And we met each other and he said, uh, you know, I'm going to start a software company. He said, I'm a programmer. <laughs> uh, I want to work with you. Another man there talked proudly about his son, Jonathan, who had won a school science fair award for programming in a language called Pascal. Impressed, Charlie offered 
this young guy, Jonathan Gay, a weekend job, working for any future royalties the teenager's software might earn, because Charlie had just spent his life savings on an Apple Visa computer, which they needed to actually make software for the Macintosh at this time. And so he couldn't afford to pay anybody any money up front. Pretty soon, Charlie and Jonathan had the beginnings of a simple game called Airborne, which was loosely connected to Charlie's time in the US Marines. You played a gunner left to single-handedly repel an invasion by firing mortar rounds and anti-aircraft shells at a non-rushing army. It was shaping up nicely, but it needed sound. And then Charlie came to me and said, hey, Jonathan's got this animation thing working and it's really cool and it's kind of a choplifter inspired, but it's really different, but he doesn't have any idea how to do the sound. So can you look into this? And we talked about, okay, we need a startup screen, you know, because when it was startup, you need some thing up there while it's still loading and loading from a 400K floppy disk, right? And so I said, Derek, hey, let's let's have a an airborne trooper, an airborne soldier with the beret, you know, and let's have him snap a salute. And uh, I said, you know what? And and let's let's do this. On the Apple II, they used to make sounds with by tweaking the speaker. They would literally pop the speaker in and out on with a table of in programming, and it was amazing the kinds of sounds they could simulate. And I remembered one where, uh, I don't know how this will come across the microphone, but it was this little game where things were going around and it would go, gotcha. like, we gotcha, you know. And they were simulating that. And I said, let's, let's make it sound like he's saying, airborne, sir. When a trooper, when an airborne trooper would pass an officer and salute, and I was an officer, so, you know, I knew this, they would say, airborne, sir. So I wanted to say, airborne, sir. And I said that to Eric Zocker. Eric, as we heard before, had initially planned on recording some sounds and getting the audio into a digital format on a mini-computer at the university. Then, from studying the waveforms, he hoped he'd be able to figure out a way to combine multiple square waves to resemble an explosion or a voice or something. And then I was thinking about it some more and reading the documentation, I was like, well, wait a minute, the Mac can actually play those sounds, but nobody's ever heard it do that. Because as Charlie explains... Because I didn't, there was no digitizer for the Macintosh at that point, a sound digitizer. It wasn't too terribly long after that that somebody made a, a little digitizer that we could do it ourselves. But at that point in time, there was no hardware, no way to digitize sounds into a Macintosh. And so I recorded some things and onto a cassette, and Charlie had some friends at what's called the Fawn Lab. It was the phonetics lab. So they had some really sophisticated digitizing equipment because they were trying to study the human vocal tract and how people create phonemes and how, you know, all the, like the real subtleties of sound production for language. And so they had a really nice, like stereo 16-bit, you know, high-frequency digitizer. Took the cassette in there and they recorded some files and then I have the files on the mini computer. And I was used to hacking around the files and I look at the files and I go, wow, this is okay. So these are the wrong byte order and their samples are too big. So to cut in there, byte order refers to the order of binary digits. And whether you're going from most significant to least, or vice versa. It's like writing left to right, as we do in English, versus right to left, like in Arabic. Eric just needed to flip the order around. And meanwhile, the digital audio files had more data points or samples per second than a Macintosh could process. So he also had to write utilities to downsample them. 
to increase the time between each discrete data point so there are fewer samples per second, which is an audio equivalent of reducing the number of frames per second in a video. In this case, he had to go from stereo 16-bit down to mono 8-bit. And then we used a modem and acoustic coupler to get him over to a Mac, and I just had a, wrote a little Mac shell program that would play the sounds. And I remember the first time I played him for Charlie, our, our jaws just dropped. I played some sampled music, a little piece of sampled music, and it was just amazing because we never heard, no one had ever heard anything like that come out of a computer. It just, it sounded, you know, it was a little bit tinny with a little Macintosh speaker, but it wasn't a bad speaker in the Mac. And it was so faithful and you had never heard that before. It was basically, you know, digital audio uh, coming out of the Mac. We were like, oh my God, could you do the game this way? It turns out they could. Eric recorded a whole bunch of sounds from his collection of vinyl recordings, focusing on things that he thought, or perhaps it's better to say hoped, were out of copyright. And he went out and got some field recordings as well. Then they played around with the sounds in an editor that he wrote. Well, Airborne ran on a 128K Macintosh and was on a 400K disc. And so um, every byte was kind of precious. So the sounds had to be really, really small. It was a little bit tricky. I had to actually learn about the hardware quite a lot to, to be able to get everything working right. And I had to write in, uh, all the sound drivers myself in assembly language. And pretty soon they got the sound playing in the game. But there were still a couple of problems. Firstly, the obvious one. This barely documented digital audio sound function built into the Mac could only play one sound at a time. In a game like Airborne, that would make for a horrible experience. I was thinking like, wow, it's not going to work to just have one sound playing at a time because if you're shooting and one of the jets is coming in, then you know the, the shot sound will interrupt the jet and it won't sound good. And so... One tricky thing I had to figure out is like, oh, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to mix some sounds so that you have more than one thing play at a time, because if one sound interrupts another, it really can kind of throw you off. And so I tried it out and it, it worked fabulously with just two sounds, which was good because there wasn't a lot of processor power. It was just an eight megahertz, not gigahertz, megahertz, you know, 68,000 processor. And I couldn't take that much time to do the sound because Jonathan needed all that power to, to do the graphics. So for each line of graphics, I got one byte of sound. So I could only use my 164th share of the processor. I used a little more than that, but that was my fair share. That turned out to be enough for what he needed to do, though, which was to dynamically mix together the two highest priority sounds every 60th of a second, according to some predefined prioritization algorithm he'd designed. But then Eric ran into a new problem. If, you, if you've seen graphics tear or flicker, um, it's because if you have a screen buffer based graphics and you're, you're writing the, the screen and the, the retrace beam kind of crosses over while you're writing, you'll get this tearing and flickering. And it's just that people call it a graphics, graphics synchronization. Um, but it's, it's basically that you're, you're updating this, you get a partial update of the screen while the screen's being painted. And so you get flickering or tearing. The exact same thing happens with audio. Every 60th of a second, the electron beam that painted the graphics to the Macintosh screen reset itself, ready to draw across and down from the top left to the bottom right of screen again. And the sound buffer worked in much the same way. But audio tearing wasn't just a minor annoyance, like when graphics flicker. 
Here's Charlie again. We'd make some sounds, and then Jonathan would put, put them in, and then every time a sound would start, the speaker would pop really loud, really bad. So pop, 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 bang. It, it was really bad. It, it was not, we could not have, you know, put it out like that. But it did it almost all the time, but every once in a while, it didn't do it. So we're trying to figure, okay, when is it that it doesn't do it? They had no oscilloscopes to help them monitor what was happening. So Charlie got tasked with doing the grunt work to help Eric figure this out. He'd use Eric's custom sound editor to extend the sound bite by bite and play it again. And they made notes of when the pop occurred or didn't. And then I remember him at one point on his calculator, calculating stuff, and he goes, I got it. The sound buffer has to be full. And because it takes less time to write data to the buffer than to play it, he then just had to determine the precise timing so that they could write sound data matching the buffer's exact size of 370 bytes without overwriting any bytes of audio that had yet to be played or were in the process of being played, thereby avoiding an unpleasant audio flicker. And then by trial and error, I had to start writing the 370 bytes like 220 bytes in, write the end of the buffer, and then as it played the first 20 bytes, I would write the start. Otherwise, it would pop, which is it would pop 60 times a second. It would just be like pop, 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 pop. If you if you had the flicker, if you had the flicker timing wrong, and so that was all kind of assembly language that would just mix the sounds on the fly every 60 times a second and kind of paint the sound buffer with the samples of the sound. We'll come back and hear the rest of the story right after this short break. The Life and Times of Video Games takes a huge amount of work to make, and I do absolutely all of the editing, writing, and production on my own, which I enjoy. But I won't be able to do it much longer, especially if I'm aiming for episodes of this caliber, unless I can earn enough money to cover the dozens of hours I put into it. So if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate a donation. Either a one-off payment via paypal.me slash mossrc, or a monthly contribution, which can now be done in two ways. By subscribing to my premium feed on Breaker via lifeandtimes.games slash Breaker, or through Patreon via lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. I'll have links to these in the show notes. Hello and welcome everyone, my name is Vaughn Hyde. I'm the host of IndiePod, an indie games podcast. With the help of my illustrious co-host, the biggest of average Josh Boys, we bring you all the indie games news you need to know, as well as shouting out some amazing indie games over on crowdfunding sites and occasionally derailing to a conversation about big anime chesticles. We are so happy to be part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network alongside so many other awesome gaming podcasts. So if you love indie games, make sure to listen in each and every Friday. All right, now let's get back to the show. When we left off, Eric Zocker and Charlie Jackson had just finished getting the audio to work in their game Airborne without any horrible popping sounds. And now, well, it was time to send it out into the world. Without sound, Airborne was nothing particularly special. It could be a fun distraction, but there was nothing to get excited about. With sound, however, it would turn heads and sell Macintoshes. What happened is the retailers told us. We, they would pop a disc in at the store, and they told me every time they popped that disc in and it started playing right of the Valkyries, which uh, was, you know, just 
that people had seen that happening with the Macintosh. He said that the people would buy it just to show off their Macintosh and the sound that it was doing. Because you have to understand that at this point in time, IBM PCs did, did not, as, as they were shipped, playback digital sounds. To show it off to a larger audience, the Silicon Beach software crew all packed into Charlie's brother's old beat-up Volkswagen camper van with their Macintosh plus some tables and homemade signs and Eric's huge stereo system from his room at college, all set to exhibit at the first Macworld Expo in San Francisco in February 1985. Okay, so imagine this. You've just arrived at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. You're coming into the Expo Hall for this Macworld event. It's in a room in the basement, and you're walking down a ramp to get inside. And as you're walking, you hear this music getting louder and louder, above the background din of voices and general crowd noise. It sounds almost like someone brought their stereo system. Like you're hearing a record playing on loop, and it's stuck. And it just keeps repeating those first couple of bars over and over again. And then you see it, the source of the music. It's the Silicon Beach software booth. And that music's coming from two huge, waist-high speakers hooked up to a computer? That can't be right. Computers can't do that. There might have been 100 booths, but we had a 10 by 10 booth, and it was just the perfect place because people came in, came right down the ramp, and we had my really giant stereo system from college. I had hooked the Mac up to the amplifier and these two really giant speakers under the table, and we were playing the airborne you know, music and game sounds really loud. So everybody, when they came down the ramp, came over to see what the hell was going on there. People would see this, you know, and hear this pop, 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 and hear the airborne, and, come, and they would come up and go, whoa. I remember a little kid was standing, this is such a great story, a little kid was standing right up in front, of, you know, the Macintosh is like right here, and he's like, oh, watching it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it goes quiet just before the jet comes in. That's your warning, you know? The first time, you don't know that, though, right? Nothing happens, no jet. Nothing's on the screen. There's no sound. And then all of a sudden, goes blowing your way, right? This kid jumped back from the screens. <laughs> he was so startled by the jet coming in. I'll never forget that. That was so awesome. Airborne, with its trademarked real sound technology, was a certified hit, and it earned enough money to turn Silicon Beach into a proper company. Pretty soon they had a whole bunch of products in their catalogue, a mix of games and utilities and creative apps. And then, a year or so later, they jumped into a new game project, one that would add even more of a wow factor than Airborne. Jonathan Gay would again handle the core programming, and Eric Zocker was ready to upgrade his custom sound driver to allow for multi-voice digitised audio decompressed in real time, which was near as I can tell a first for the industry, plus an improved sound editor so that he could do loops and fades, or alter the sampling rate and pitch. But Charlie felt he'd tapped out his design and graphics talents on Airborne, and wanted to take on more of an oversight role, akin to what we'd now call a producer. So they flew in a guy called Mark Stephen Pierce. He would do the design. He was a hotshot young digital illustrator and animator who'd made a name for himself as a co-founder of creative software toolmaker Macromind, which later became Macromedia, a competitor of Adobe, that Adobe swallowed up whole. Mark came up with a design for a sort of platformer-style interactive animated cartoon, where you'd guide a guy armed with a bag of rocks 
through a bunch of dangerous rooms in the castle, uh, looking for like a shield and an orb and things, en route to fight against the Black Knight. And like a hand-animated cartoon, the game would be filled with various little touches, like flickering torches on the walls in the background and stars that would fly around your head if you bump into a wall as you stumble around in a circle, disoriented. And of course, these visual flourishes would extend also to the enemies in the levels, which were mostly inspired by experiences Mark had playing arcade games. Dark Castle had an incredible, evocative visual aesthetic, an almost grimy art style that used the Mac's black-and-white screen to absolute perfection. But it would only feel like an interactive cartoon if it sounded like one. And as luck would have it, the right guy for the job was a loyal Silicon Beach software customer. We had a guy who was testing, beta testing, Silicon Press, our label printing utility. His name was Dick Noel. And... He, li- he was local, and he, he would come in and talk to us because he made he – was, he was a voice artist, it turned out. We didn't really know that at first, but – so he would always make cassettes and need to put labels on them and send them off to people. He had his own little studio in his house, and we found this out. We said, hey, can you help us make some sounds? We need really good sounds for this game. And he goes, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Dick had been doing voices for radio and TV for decades at that point, as well as releasing several albums as a singer. At the peak of his career, he'd apparently been known as the king of the jingles. And I'm told he worked on the pilot episode of the popular Flintstones TV animation series. Just the pilot, not anything after that. By the time he met Charlie Jackson... Dick had retired to a place in San Diego County, where he continued to do bits and pieces of work from a home studio. Here's Eric Zocker again. So Charlie introduced me to Dick, and I actually didn't know kind of that much about his background. But Charlie said, hey, he's a voiceover artist, and so see what you can do. And we already had quite a lot of the animation working in Dark Castle. And I basically had a list of of sounds that I wanted to get. There were some things that were like footfalls and clinking chains and things like that that were were clearly just kind of sound effects and like the lightning strikes and the start and stuff like that. But um, all the all the little monsters and then all the kind of hero sounds, I had basically uh, ha- hadn't done this before, but I had done enough audio production with Airborne. I, I kind of came over to Dick's house, you know, really well prepared. And so he had a Mac and I had an early build of Dark Castle that didn't have any sounds in it. And so I would play the, the animations of the various characters for him. And then I had a list of, of sounds. And he basically had all the ideas for the kind of interesting cartoonish characterizations. And he would go, you know, he'd say, hey, what about... And then there's schmack, Which was used for the diving birds and apparently inspired by 1950s hoodlums from the south side of Chicago. He'd basically kind of do them for me a little bit and then... Um, and I'd say, oh, no, that's awesome. That's great. And uh, he had a recording studio in his home because he was still doing, he was retired, but he was still doing some, I think, radio and cartoon voiceover and stuff. So he had some really nice microphones and he had a, re- a reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was a big deal uh, back then. Uh, and by then, I think I had a digitizer on the Mac, which was good. So we we did, uh, it probably only took like about an hour and a half to record a whole bunch of takes of the sounds because they... They're not, they, you know, they're not very long, of course, because of the memory constraints. So I probably spent an hour and a half with him. We'd go and look at the Mac, and he'd get inspired by the animation. He'd come up with some voices, 
and we he'd give me two or three different kind of treatments, and each one you do about ten different uh, recordings of it, and we just left the tape running, and uh, then I, I went back to Silicon Beach and started digitizing things and putting them into the game and kind of seeing how they looked and and then refining them from there. It was all the kind of characterizations were all Dick's idea. I think I'm the, I'm the one that said, hey, we this will be really fun. We're going to have a credit that's voice characterizations by. And I think we were the first game that actually had like a voiceover artist in it because that was in you know, 1980, came out in 86. Um, so that was before the Sound Blaster on the PC and stuff. So so we had the first uh, voiceover artist and he was just really, really good. Yeah. All told, Dark Castle contained more than 60 sounds, of which maybe a third were voice characterizations from Dick Noel. Charlie contributed one sound. You know, my claim to fame is, is that it was my voice that was used for the guy getting whipped down in the bottom where you fall down into the chamber. Ah! 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 I don't know if you recognize that, but that was, that was me. And Eric got the rest with a handheld recorder. Uh, like the running water is from, you know, a washroom from sinks and toilets and stuff. The one thing that I remember that was really funny, we, we were pretty cheap at Silicon Beach, so we had these uh, folding tables. They were these really nice, sturdy old folding tables, the kind... You could buy like office supply stores and the legs are these metal legs that fold up under the table. And then when you unfold them, there's a little metal ring that slides down to lock the legs into place. And so there's a bunch of sounds of like chains and stuff in the game. And that's me dropping the little metal ring down onto its seat underneath one of the, like the table that my computer was on. It's like tinkling, tinkling. And then, you know, you could, uh, one other thing you could do with my sound editor is change the sampling rate of the sound. So you could make things, you know, deeper or, or higher pitched. This sort of improvised sound design where you record real-world objects had been a staple of radio plays and foley art in films for decades. But for video games, and the home computer variety in particular, this was breaking new ground. A handful of older games for arcade and home console systems had used recorded rather than synthesized voice samples, like 1982 Vectrex game Spike. 1983 arcade hits Sinistar, Dragon's Lair, and Star Wars, and the 1984 arcade game The Three Stooges in Brides is Brides. But most of these, with the notable exception of Sinistar's bone-chilling proclamations, were included more as a gimmick to attract attention than as a meaningful contribution to the core experience. But for computer games, this was all new. And now that they'd been elevated once and for all beyond the level of gimmick. These twin new arts of digital sound sampling and voice characterizations for video games took no time to spread around the industry. Inspired by Silicon Beach Software's games, dozens of other Mac titles embraced digital sampling of voices in TV and environments. Hooray, hooray, step right up. And the technique spread further afield too into DOS and Amiga games, both commercial and amateur, and elsewhere, where sound effects quickly evolved from synthesized beeps into recorded clinks and clanks and blops, like in Dark Castle. A new genre sprung up, the interactive movie, with titles like Spaceship Warlock and Night Trap, alongside a new breed of graphic adventure game, where the dialogue would not just be displayed as on-screen text, as was the tradition. But also it'd get voiced by a mix of professional actors, in-house development staff, and random people pulled Exploring off the street. Exploring our collections can be dangerous, Mr. Uh, and then CD-ROMs hit the mass market. 
and video game audio directors and composers started to get more room to play around with high-quality sound. Not just because CDs had that capability of high-quality digital sound, but also because there was suddenly so much storage space available. And then video game voice acting became a real profession where you have famous figures like Nolan North, Troy Baker, and Jennifer Hale who earn a living just giving a voice to the virtual people and creatures found in games. Although I, for one, would love to see more new games that embrace that old-school cartoony vibe and artistry of Dick Noel's Dark Castle voice characterizations. Well, you don't need dialogue, because the timbre and tone and pitch of a voice says it all. Well, you know how an enemy monster will behave just from hearing it. Because for all the amazing things we can do now with sound in games, it's actually pretty unusual and surprisingly uncommon to have audio that truly elevates your experience. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, and this episode was adapted in part from a chapter on Silicon Beach software in my book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. This is the first episode of Season 3. Last season, I decided to pare things back, because I, I just don't earn enough money from the show to cover the dozens of hours it takes to produce a single interview-heavy episode. And instead, I just focused on building a narrative around my research findings, which I think still works pretty well. But this season, I wanted to include a few episodes that showcase what I think the life and times of video games could be if I had the financial support to do this as my job. And this episode is one such example. So if you enjoyed it, now more than ever, I need you to share it. To tell other people they should listen, they should check it out. To say nice things about it on social media and all that kind of stuff. And if you really like it, I'd be super grateful for any financial support you can send my way. I can take either one-off or monthly donations. For one-off payments of any amount, the easiest method is to go to paypal.me slash and follow the prompts. For monthly payments, you can either go to Patreon, where you nominate an amount and get various rewards, depending on what payment tier that falls within, like ad-free, high bitrate episodes, and bonus audio content and written behind-the-scenes updates and research notes. Or as of right now, you can subscribe to my premium feed on Breaker, where for three US dollars a month, you'll get ad-free high bitrate versions of everything that's on this main feed, plus all the bonus audio that gets posted to Patreon. The links for these are in the show notes, but I'll read out the short versions for you now. To recap, PayPal, paypal.me slash For Patreon, go to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon, and you'll be redirected. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. And for the premium feed on Breaker, go to lifeandtimes.games slash Breaker. That's B-R-E-A-K-E-R. I'll be back with the next episode in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, be sure to check out my recently redesigned website at lifeandtimes.games. And feel free to email me about anything, anytime, on richard at lifeandtimes.games. I actually love receiving email from listeners. 
Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. See ya. Heya, I'm Chris Wilson. And I'm Dylan Gregory. And we host Backstage Gaming, a weekly podcast about video games and storytelling. We both play pretend professionally. Sometimes on stage with other people. And sometimes alone in a soundproof room. So join us every Monday while we talk about games, acting, and how a story comes together. Backstage Gaming. Dramatic takes on your favorite games. Part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network.